Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. disappointed that it came on, right? You're like, oh man. But it is, it's good for us to be together this morning. It's good for us to be outside. I love the way in which over the past couple of months, we've had just about once a month a service where we've been able to uh, gather together. Uh, Both of our services, uh, worshiping together and uh, eating a fellowship meal. So I think it's great that we have an opportunity to do this together this morning, to be here with one another, to be outside enjoying God's incredible creation, to be singing about all of these praises and the things that we see uh, God doing in our midst. Uh, I love, though, as I look out, I see you kind of moving further and further around to try to keep in the shade. Uh, But here's what we pray. We're going to pray for a fresh wind and a fresh fire to kind of blow through this place today. Not only we pray for uh, a revival in our hearts and lives, but to keep us cool as we study God's word together. So as we open it up, as we spend time together in God's word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Lord, we thank you this day for your word. We thank you for how, Lord, it is indeed living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And what we recognize we need is, Lord, as we were talking about last week, to come under it. We pray that as we open it up, that as we spend time together studying today, that you may speak powerfully into our hearts and lives. So open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. We want to see you and hear you and know you more deeply. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever been to the beach and you've seen those uh, professionals do some of those sand sculptures that they do? Uh, I know over the years I've had a chance when we've been at places like Clearwater Beach to see these incredible things that people build. And I mean, we're not just talking uh, like sand castles. We're talking about these huge promotional things where they bring in tons and tons of sand. It's really amazing when you think about how much work they actually put into that to know that in a short time, once that sand dries up, it's going to blow away. That once the storms come, it's going to fall away. That when the tide rises, that it's going to wash away. It's not unlike when you and I build things with uh, Play-Doh. You know, you take out the Play-Doh and you play with it for a little while, and then eventually you just kind of mash it all back up and you end up putting it away. Or you think about how when you take out uh, dominoes and you spend all of those hours uh, setting it up only to quick knock it down. We know that we build these things and have them quickly fall. I think about that this morning because I have here before you some bins or a bin, and I'm going to share what's inside in just a second. You know, on occasion, I'll let my nerd... My nerdery come out for a second. Um, on occasion, people will ask, are you a Star Wars or a Star Trek fan? And there's a part of me that loves them both equally. If it's Star Wars, it's got to be the old stuff. Um, but if, if you really held my feet to the fire, I would probably tell you that I'm actually a Star Trek fan. 
And, and not the William Shatner Star Trek. I grew up in high school and college on Jean-Luc Picard. And see, thank you. And Star Trek, the next generation. Now, if you're familiar with Star Trek, you know that their biggest enemy that they always face is this cybernetic life form known as the Borg. And represented in these bins are Legos. Now, this bin probably represents, and this is only a small part of I would say the thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours that have been spent putting together Legos over the past 18 to 20 years. I think about, there are Star Wars pieces in here. There are probably Hobbit pieces in here. There are all kinds of Legos that represent different sets that we've accumulated over the years. And you know how Legos work, right? You put them together, and then what happens is you end up tearing them apart, and they end up in a bin like this. I call this bin my Borg bin. Because if you're familiar with the Borg, they always say, we are Borg, we will assimilate you. And so the whole thing is they take cultures, they take people, and they assimilate them into their culture. And so this bin represents an assimilation over the years of all of these different Legos. Now, if you're familiar with the Lego movie, I'd be more of the craggle guy, all right? I want to glue them all together because I want them to last and to look like what we've created. And yet what we recognize is that's part of the fun of Legos, right? You build them and then you tear them apart, you put them in a bin like this, and eventually you get to use your imagination to build something new. Now, why do I say this? It's because in what we're going to be talking about together today, how do you and I build the kinds of things that are going to last? Some of you are starters. You're quick to start. Some of you are finishers. You want to finish well. But today, how do we start well? How do we finish well? And how do we protect what God has started? And that's something that I believe that we're going to find as we continue on in our sermon series on Nehemiah. Now, normally for this outdoor service, we may kick off a new sermon series, uh, but this morning we're going to be wrapping up a sermon series. And the thing that I want us to be aware of is this. If, if you've missed the past couple of weeks, that is completely fine. Everything that we're going to be talking about today stands on its own. And what I pray we're going to be discovering together is how do you build the kinds of things that are going to last? As we see in Nehemiah, it's really about the return of the king. And how do you and I continue on a daily basis, making sure that we are placing that king in the proper place so that what we are building is going to last? So this morning, we're going to be spending some time in Nehemiah chapter 9. You and I know that it's very easy for us to be able to build things like, like Play-Doh. Then you mix it all up, it eventually becomes a gray blob if it doesn't dry out and it gets put away. You think about an Etch-a-Sketch and you, you make something, but in order for it to stay, you, you, shake it, you, have to, you have to shake it up in order to build something new. And, you know, we like to build new things, but the thing is, is nobody wants to restart and rebuild a, a marriage, right? You want, you want what you build 
in your relationship to last. You want, you want what you're building in your children to last. If you're in school, you know, you want what you're learning to last. So how do we make things that are going to stand the test of time so that we don't see things end up getting torn down? And I think that as you and I turn to, to Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to see how the people continue to make God their king. But as we look at then Nehemiah chapter 10 to 13, it's, we certainly could have uh, extended this sermon series out, but much of what happens in 10, 11, and 12 is very similar. But I think Nehemiah is actually a telltale sign and a warning for us of what happens when we don't make the king the, the king. Now, in where we left off last week, we saw that there was this incredible worship service. The people were coming under the word of God. They had six hours of listening to the law being preached to them. And when they hear the law being read to them, they end up humbling themselves. They begin to weep. And then they're told, but this isn't a time of weeping. This is actually a time of rejoicing because you've been living so far apart from God. Now you know how it is that you're supposed to live. So now you can come underneath the word. And so they're saying this is a time of rejoicing and of getting our lives right. And so they celebrated the festival of Sukkot where they built these shelters and they lived in them. And so when we pick up in Nehemiah 9, they've actually been living in these shelters for nearly a month. And now these branch booths, these tent twigs are beginning to be torn down. But they continue in their worship. And as they worship, they find themselves coming to this place of confession because they recognize how far they have fallen. And I think that's certainly something that we see, that when you and I enter into the presence of God, when we're worshiping together, what happens is, is when we recognize how great God is, it's a reminder of how far we have fallen, how great we are not. And what it does is it actually leads us to a place of confession. That's what we're going to be talking about in just a moment. And so... What I want us to see is if you want to build a building that's going to last, if you want to have a heart that's continually returning to the king, there's a couple of things I think that we need to remember this morning. Now, if you happen to grab a bulletin, you want to take notes, this is the first point. It happens when we remember the greatness of God. If you want to build something in life that is going to last, you have to remember the greatness of God. Notice what chapter 9 says in verses 1 to 3. It says... On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law and the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Notice, what did they do? They worshiped. We talked about this last week, a six-hour worship service. Notice, this worship service is even longer. Notice, they spend the first six hours just reading from the book of the law. They have the book, the Bible, that's being read to them. And then what do they do? It says, for the next quarter of the day. So for the next six hours, they were confessing their sins before the Lord. And I think there's something about that that makes sense, right? The more you and I come under the law of God and read it, 
the more we realize how awesome God is. And the more we recognize how awesome God is, the more we recognize that I'm not. And so what does it do is it leads to confession. And as you and I are confessing, what happens is we recognize that God loves us. And despite of our sin, and because he loves us, it leads us to even more praise and wanting to lift up his greatness. And so certainly we see that here. But notice, too, there is a recognition of the holiness of God that led them to a place where they said, we need to separate out from all of the foreigners, from the influences that we can see in the culture around us. Those who are caught in addiction know that one of the things we'll talk about is leaving behind people, places, and things that if you want to if you want to have this recovery last there are things that you need to change and and what nehemiah is telling the people is look you need to change who you're hanging out with and so you need to separate yourself out from them i think sometimes you and i recognize that how, how many of you would say that sometimes when you get a little too cozy with the things of the world and the people around you suddenly you find yourself maybe stumbling in your faith. You find yourself maybe not as strong as you used to be at one point. And I think that's why it's important for us to separate out a little bit, right? I mean, this duck that everybody is now noticing here, right? Instead of listening, it's like we notice the duck. It has separated itself out from, you know, the group that it has been with. But, I mean, certainly, hey, buddy, you know, there's certainly something about when we gather together, we separate ourselves out. Think about even just for an hour or two a week when you and I go to church, uh, we separate ourselves out and we just focus on our relationship with God. And I think there's certainly something here when we see how we are to live our lives differently. You know, we talked about this last week, that when the people had an opportunity to return to Jerusalem— that in many ways, many of the people, only a small percentage returned. For many, it was actually easier to stay in, in Babylon. And I, I think about, you know, when our own family, I think about Nicole's family, they immigrated here from the Netherlands uh, when her parents were very little. And, you know, you think about 75 or 100 years later, if somebody were to say, let's go back to the Netherlands, let's go back there. How many of us would say, no, you know what, life is pretty good where we are. Why would we want to go back there? And I think we see that happening. It's very easy for us to become accustomed to where we live. I mean, I don't know what your Babylon looks like, but in some ways it's easier for us to live in the Babylon around us than to live for the things of God. And so we separate ourselves out. Jesus said this in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its very own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And in John, John chapter, John 2, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. We're reminded that our citizenship is in heaven. But we also know that we're called to live amongst the people. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that we are the salt of the earth that we are the light of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that we are to live such good lives among the people that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, I think that there's something important for us here that, yes, we live in the world, but we're not citizens of the world. Ultimately, you and I are citizens of heaven. And what we're going to see when we get to Nehemiah chapter 13 is what happens when we allow the culture and the influences around us to influence us so much to the place where we begin to fall away in our faith. Notice a third thing, though, not only the separating out, but they focus on the greatness of God in their worship. Listen to what it says in verses 5 and 6. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. See, there's certainly something about a worshiping lifestyle that changes our perspective. I think about Nathaniel. Nathaniel, uh, when we talked to him a couple weeks ago, he had just finished up his basic training, and now he was starting as a student. And he, we were asking him, I said, how was basic training? And he said, it was the best summer camp that I never want to do again. And, you know, one of the things that he said is stuck with us. He said, you know, Dad, there's a lot of people out here that all they do is complain. They complain about how hard it is, how tough it is, how mean people are. But he said, Dad, it's what you make of it. And he said, it's not that bad. But he said, what happens is when I'm surrounded by all these people who do nothing but grumble and complain, I find myself wanting to grumble and complain right along with them. But if I keep my eyes fixed on what God has in store, then I'm not going to worry about what everybody else around me is saying. This is why worship is so important, because you and I are surrounded by negative people, by people who want to tear you down, by argumentative people. And when you have a lifestyle that's filled with worship, then you know what? You're saying, my, my eyes are fixed on the king. They're not fixed on the things that are around me. And so it's so important for us to remember the greatness of God. We've been singing about that together today. You remember the greatness of God, and your heart continually returns to the king. Notice a second thing. It's about remembering the goodness of God, right? We've, sing, we've sung that together today. Uh, you know, God, you've been so faithful. God, you've been so, so good. It's so important for us to remember how good God has been to us. In fact, if you look at these verses, we're not going to read them all together, over 50 times it uses the personal pronoun you. And over 16 times it talks about give, God. You've done this for us. You've given this to us. They're recalling the goodness of God. Listen to 7 and 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur and the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Gigasites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. And literally for the next 20 verses, it recalls how God is good. How God led them out of Egypt, led them with Moses through the Red Sea, led them to the promised land. God provided for them all along. God has been good to them. And even in their season of rebellion, they recall that God has still been faithful. 
that God is still good. God formed a nation. God provided for them every step of the way. And listen to what it says in verse 25. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. I mean, how many of us could revel in the goodness of God? I mean, literally, it's a word that means like luxuriated. Like God is so luxurious in his goodness that you can revel in it. This is how good God is to us. And it's very easy for us to forget. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves of the greatness and the goodness of God. What's amazing about the people of Israel is that they recognize, God, you are good even when you allowed other nations to come in. And they said, God, you did this not out of vengeance, but out of love, right? A father disciplines the ones he loves. And so they say, look, Lord, even when the Assyrians came in and the Babylonians and the Persians came in, you want something from me, don't you? Right? When, when all of these people came in, they said, God, even then you were good to us. By the way, Corrie Ten Boom says this, that when she survived the Nazi concentration camp after helping another of people survive the Holocaust and hiding Jews, she said, deep in our hearts, we believe in a good God. Yet how shallow is our understanding of his goodness? How often have I heard people say how good God is? We prayed for no rain for our church picnic and God sent good weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God is also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. A lot of times you and I think that God is only good when good things happen to us. But do we recognize that God is good even in the midst of trial? You know, can you say, I lost my job, but God, you are still good. God, I'm struggling with my marriage, but God, I believe you're still good. God, I'm struggling in school, but I believe that you are still good. I understand it's not just about putting on a happy face, gritting your teeth through it and saying, ah, I can do this, right? It's about remembering how good God is. And what we do is we remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. The more you and I remember God's faithfulness in the past, the more we are going to remember his goodness in the present and his promises for the future. So in order for us to keep the king, the king of our lives, we remember his greatness and we remember his goodness. This is how we're going to create the kinds of things that are going to last. Even Paul talks about this in Romans 15. He's referring to the Old Testament. He says, for everything that was written in the past was to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We can have hope even in the midst of struggle because we believe that God is good. Now, the third thing is we remember the grace. God is good, he is great, and God is filled with grace. Listen to what it says in verses 31 to 32. But in your great mercy... Did you not put an end to them or abandon them? For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, our mighty God, the mighty and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love 
Do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Do you notice? They said, look, even though we have been a stiff-necked people, God, you have been good to us. You have shown us grace even when we don't deserve it. And that's what grace is, getting the things that you don't deserve or not getting the thing that you do deserve. I think about this in a simple way. There was a couple weeks ago, we were on our way home from Valparaiso. We were hanging out, having dinner with some friends. And suddenly I noticed in my rearview mirror that there are rollers behind me. I'm, I'm getting pulled over by a police officer. And I pulled off to the side of the road and I'm like, what in the world did I do wrong? And he said, sir, I want you to know that you have changed lanes now three times. And two out of the three times you used your turn signal. But one of those times you did not use your turn signal. And I thought to myself, do you have nothing better to do? than to pull me over for not using a turn signal one out of three times? And he even said as much. He says, you probably think I have nothing better to do than to pull you over. And in my mind, I'm like, yep. <laughs> but here's the thing. He, he went back to his car, and Nicole and I are talking. Gabe is going through driver's ed training. We call him, and like, you're not going to believe this, bud. Like, he, he nails me on everything I do wrong when I drive now. Right? You know, and he follows me, Dad, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. I'm like, stop it, you know. Uh, but we're calling him thinking, I can't believe this is happening. And the police officer comes back and he says, without a ticket, without a warning, he said, hey, I hope you guys have a great night. You guys take care. Now, I thought to myself, that's right. I didn't, no, I didn't deserve a ticket. Until you step back and you realize, I did break the I, I, even in something as minor an infraction as that, I deserved a ticket. But he showed me grace. He, he gave me something that I deserve. He said, you don't get something that you deserve. It, this is the point of grace. It's these things that you and I don't deserve or do deserve. And God says, no. And this is what you and I receive from Jesus Christ. I don't, know, I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know um, how, how messed up or broken things are. Here's the thing that I know is if you feel like you've made a mistake and that you screwed up, and what you need to know is God loves you. And in his incredible love and grace, he gave Jesus Christ so that you and I, though we screw up, and we will continue to screw up, we will continue to make mistakes, but this is the great thing about God is that as we give our lives over to Jesus, when we make those mistakes, we get back up again. It's God who literally lifts us back up, dusts us off, and he says, I love you. And he sends us back out again. You and I need to remember the goodness and the grace of God. He loves us so much. At any point, God could have said to the people of Israel, forget you. I'm starting over again. At any point, God could say to us, forget you. I'm tired of dealing with you. But Paul says that where sin increases, grace increased all the more. You and I bask in the incredible grace of God. And this is how we build the kinds of things that are going to last. It's about the returning of the king to our hearts on a daily basis. 
saying, I know I've screwed up. I know I've made mistakes. But God, in your goodness and your grace and in your love, God, I know I can continue to move forward. Those are the kinds of things that are going to last. Now, you and I, we're not going through Nehemiah chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. There's, there's much that we could draw out, but yet, as you look at 10, 11, and 12, the people continue to have their hearts return to the Lord. They, they say there are things that they're going to do different. In chapter 10, they promise we're not going to marry non-Israelites. We promise we're going to not sell grain on the Sabbath. We're not going to trade goods. They promise to bring their first fruits to God, to not neglect the house of God. In chapter 11, we see the residents returning to Jerusalem, and we see the surrounding areas as they've returned. Chapter 12, we really could have a message on that. It's really incredible. It's this, as the people come together, there's this incredible procession, and they celebrate what God has done. And like, there's this huge parade through Jerusalem and on the wall. And so, because the wall has been rebuilt, the city's been rebuilt, the temple has been rebuilt, and they're worshiping once again. And in this procession, they've got parts of the choir on the top of one wall and parts of the choir on the top of another wall. And they're singing back and forth and they're praising God. In fact, it's said that it could be heard from beyond the city. Nehemiah 12, 43 says, And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I mean, is our rejoicing and joy so loud that it can be heard from beyond our building, from beyond this place today? In where you go, in the people you interact with, is your joy so overflowing that people know that you are a child of the King of Kings? Now, here's the thing. You think that this is the end of the story, right? You, you think that, all right, they've completed everything. It's all done. Wow, how great it is. And yet, Nehemiah is actually a cautionary tale of what happens when we don't keep our eyes fixed on the king. Because when they get to chapter 13, Nehemiah has gone back to the king, Artaxerxes. Remember, you know, the enemy said, oh, you just want to be in charge. But he's returned to Artaxerxes. The work has been done, right? The people's hearts have returned, and he's gone for a season. But then we learn that at some point, he returns to Jerusalem. And you know what he discovers? The people are marrying foreign women. They're selling goods and grain on the Sabbath. The people are no longer bringing their first fruits to the temple. They're not giving to the priests and the Levites. In fact, the priests and Levites are having to work out in the fields. Even as Pastor Andrew was saying a couple weeks ago, the antagonist Tobiah is living in the temple. And so Nehemiah returns and he's got to clean up the mess. He said, look, what God has started if we're going to finish this work, we have to keep our eyes fixed on God. You've done the very things you said your ancestors had done, where you followed and then you fell away. And listen to what it says. In Nehemiah 13, 19 to 21, When the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. 
Once or twice, the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. I read that. You know what I'm reminded of? The enemy is always right outside the gates. You know, in what God is seeking to build in you, the enemy is always right there waiting, trying to tempt us, right? The enemy is there selling their grain, saying, hey, I know you're in there worshiping on Sunday, but guess what? I, I'm right here for you. Right? They're, they're there saying, you think God is going to provide for you? I'm right here on the outside of the gates. I want to provide for you. So you and I have to be vigilant because the enemy is always going to seek to tear down what it is that God has been building. And I don't know what it is that God is building in your life. I don't want to see it torn down. You know, Nehemiah goes in and what does he do? He, he begins to clean out the temple. He gets Tobiah out of there. He physically, it says he pulls people's hair. You know, I mean, he goes in and he just cleans up what it is that the people have begun to mess up. And some of us, maybe we need our own kind of house cleaning. We recognize that for some of us, maybe, you know, God has been building something in your life. But the reality is there's always an enemy that seeks to destroy it, right? that says, why don't you just be assimilated back into culture? And what we're reminded of is that if we want to be a people who build and finish well, it's really all about keeping our eyes fixed on the king. You know, the, the people have returned, as we said last week, and now it's about the return of the king. The king was always with them, but they had to keep their eyes fixed on the king. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to forget that the king is with us and we have to keep our eyes continually focused on the king of kings so that no matter what it is that God is seeking to build in our church, what God is seeking to build in your own lives, that it will stand firm. Because I believe that God wants to build something great in us and God wants to build something great through us. But if we want to to have what we build last. It's about saying, Lord, I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you. And when I fall, I'm going to continue to return to you because I know that, God, you are a God that is filled with grace and mercy and love. And that's what I love because today we get to celebrate the sacrament of baptism. It's people who've said, you know what? I know that my life is messed up, but I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I believe that because of his goodness and grace and love that I am forgiven. And even when I make mistakes, which I know I will make, he will continue to show me his love and his grace. And I pray that we may all remember that together today. To finish well what God has started. And to keep our eyes fixed on the king. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is a forgiving God, who is a redeeming and restoring God. God, when we make mistakes, you do not leave us 
to our own devices, but instead, Lord, you have shown us a way. Lord, you have forgiven us in Jesus Christ. And when we call out his name, when we say, Lord, I know that I have made mistakes, I know that I have screwed up, but Lord, your love is so great and you love me so much that you sent your son, your perfect son into this world. That Lord Scripture says that when we believe in him, we shall not perish but have everlasting life. We pray, Lord, today that we may experience that everlasting life, whether it's for the first time or Lord, whether it's recalling that again and having our hearts return to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Lord, we pray that in this time and in this moment, would you just speak to us, remind us of who we are, but ultimately, Lord, remind us of who you are and your incredible love for us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Friends, let's stand as we sing together about God's forever faithful love.